You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. For over three decades, Keith Bowers has been at the forefront of applied ecology, land conservation, and sustainable design. Founder and president of Biohabitats, Keith has built a multidisciplinary organization focused on conservation planning, ecological restoration, and regenerative design. His work has spanned the scale from site-specific ecosystem restoration projects involving wetland, river, woodland, and coastal habitat restoration to regional watershed management and species conservation planning. Keith also founded and is partner in Ecological Restoration and Management, Inc., a restoration construction company providing native revegetation, invasive species management, and coastal restoration throughout the Mid-Atlantic. Keith served on the board of the Society for Ecological Restoration for more than 10 years and on the board of the Wildlands Network for eight years. He's a fellow of the American Society of Landscape Architects and is a professional wetland scientist. Keith, thank you so much for being on Rewilding Earth today. Uh, It's my pleasure, Jack. Thanks for having me. We just had the UN Biodiversity Report come out, and a lot of people, a lot of people are talking about it, which is very encouraging um, that it didn't go completely under the radar. What goes through your mind? Because you think about things differently, obviously. Anybody who comes to your site, biohabitats.com, will see that you guys are the picks and shovels and engineers and people who are doing things right on the ground in a lot, a lot of different areas. And I wonder what goes through the mind of someone like you when you hear those things, because you kind of are on the front lines. This is what we do at Biohabitats. Our first value at Biohabitats is revere wild nature, and that has a lot of meaning to us. And the idea that, you know, it's pretty depressing that we're hearing now, which we, I think we've all known in the environmental community for some time, that we've seen the the decline of species worldwide, flora and fauna, and now we're, we're, we're getting more proof of that. And the idea that up to a million plant and animal species face extinction um, in our lifetimes and certainly our kids' lifetimes is pretty daunting. Um, but I think that's, what, that's why we started Biohabitats. Biohabitats really was the idea about apply, applying ecology back to the landscape in how we how we form, shape, build the landscape. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting to think about how ecology really shaped how we lived on the landscape at one time. And like many things, we've moved far away from that. And now we're sort of trying to control those processes in the landscape. And we've gotten away from the values that ecological processes and functions provide to us. And so biohabitats is all about sort of reinitiating that that discussion and that idea that in order to have a, a a rich and healthy economy and a rich and healthy culture, you really need to have a foundation a strong foundation of ecology, ecological processes, ecological functions in a really healthy, sound, and vibrant environment. And so we need to think about my favorite term that I like is restoring the future, right? We can't go back and restore the past. 
we need to think about how the future is going to shape the landscapes that we're in and the habitat for, for species and how do we begin to restore that. So over, even over my short career in, in the fields of ecological restoration and being a restoration ecologist, we really had to rethink what we're doing out there and it's, it's provided a real challenge for us. Inherently, we need to restore ecosystems to conserve and restore biodiversity. Um, so it's, it's taken a more ecocentric viewpoint than an anthropocentric viewpoint, which is, again, another human value judgment that we need to make in terms of moving forward. Have you run into any problems with the idea that we may not know enough or we have a lot more to learn about actually putting pieces back together? We don't even pretend that we think we know. <laughs> okay. It is, it, is, it is extremely complex. While I think there's been a lot of great advancement in the science and studying ecology, the idea that we think we know enough to put it back together or to, to heal it in a way, we're still learning all the time. Yeah. And there's so much, there's infinite interaction that happens out there in the landscape between flora and fauna and biogeochemical um, cycles and, and all the rest that it, it, it is really complex and we're still learning. To, to give you an idea, you know, we do a lot of salt marsh restoration on the East Coast, the West Coast, the Gulf of Mexico, where we're doing coastal restoration. And, and in some ways, people say, well, that's relatively easy to restore because you're dealing with tides and you're dealing with uh, elevations where several inches make a difference in terms of what plant communities can survive there. And on the East Coast, it's Spartina alterniflora, which is the uh, uh, dominant plant that we find in our coastal salt marshes. And a couple inches high or a couple inches low, it won't grow. So if we can get out there with our survey equipment and grade the site and restore that, that profile, we can be almost 100% sure we're going to reestablish that Spartina alterniflora marsh. However, when we start looking at soil samples and we start looking at all the macroorganisms and microorganisms that inhabit that type of marsh, you know, we have found coming back 20, 30, 40 years later and comparing it to our reference natural marsh that we're not even close to final restoration on those projects where the plants may look good, but it's still not functioning the same way that a natural, natural marsh is, right? So from a macro scale, sometimes we think we are doing great in our restoration, and, and by far where we are compared to where we were 20 or 30 years ago, but we still have a lot to learn out there. And I kind of think about it as, you know, I'm a licensed landscape architect, and we have licensed engineers in our office. And, you know, we're required to get a license by the various states to practice what we do because it's about the health and safety and welfare of, of people. Yet, we can freely go out and tinker with an ecosystem that's infinitely more complex than a bridge or a building or a handrail for a walkway. And yet, we don't need really any certification or a license to do that work. And so... It, it, it's interesting to think about the complexities in restoration ecology and ecological restoration and, and 
Um, I think we would all be the first to say that we still have a long way to go in the field to get it really right. What an incredible picture, this angle, this picture that you paint, that we have been tinkering and taking things apart and throwing pieces away to a machine. We have no idea how it truly, truly works. I mean, do you take comfort in the fact that uh, when a project that you're working on is um, you're working on a restoration and it's attached to something that's still in good shape because there's that missing link that you're not really sure, you know, you bring it up to a certain level, but you know, it's not still right, but you, but it's benefiting from being next to uh, or surrounded by something in that is more intact that helps it to recover fully. We'll take any win we can get there. Right. And I, I think part of it is, you know, the, the more you, the more you know about ecosystems, then in some ways, the more depressed you get about what you're seeing out there and what isn't quite right. Um, but that being said, a lot of our, we, we take a lot of pride and, and satisfaction in knowing that we're, we're really trying to advance the latest science and the application of restoration ecology out there. And again, we may not get it right all the time, but we're still learning an awful lot and contributing back to back to the science and back to the practice. And there, there are times where we'll go out and do a project and I'll go back five, six, seven, ten years later and I'm just amazed at how well that restoration has taken place and hold. And, you know, we also do a lot of monitoring for various government agencies and, and other clients on the, the success or in sometimes the lack of success of our projects. So we try to get a better understanding of how, how they're working or not working. And that's extremely valuable as well. I was going to ask too, in relation to that, you must hang out with a lot of people like yourself. You guys probably have your own conferences. Does it seem like the need for you, companies like yours, is growing? As one might assume it is, given the fact that people seem to be getting more serious about the myriad, myriad issues that we're talking about. There's, it's hard to talk about this in a macro level because you guys then get on the ground and actually do these projects, which one might seem very, very small in comparison to the larger need. But I just picture a lot of kids going into school and, and saying, I want to be like Keith. I want to do this stuff. I want to be a part of this. And I also picture new companies developing, yours expanding Am I, am I being too optimistic? No, you're not at all. To, to give you, there's been some recent economic studies done, and just to throw out some quick numbers there, that one study looks at the, rest, the ecological restoration market as a $9.5 billion market annually, $9.5 billion, oh. um, which is fantastic to see. And there's another study out there that worldwide, it's a $25 billion a year um, industry, restoration industry. And in fact, some of these studies say that the restoration industry now employs more people than coal mining, logging, or steel put together. So if we think about how restoration is expanding and, and the need for and the advocacy for restoration, I think there's, there's a lot of hope out there. And we're certainly seeing that in terms of our our business and in terms of the other you know other firms not only in the United States but around the world that are beginning to practice restoration you know I, I was 
lucky enough and honored to be on the board of the Wildlands Network for about eight years. And the reason I found the Wildlands Network was I was also part of the Society for Ecological Restoration, or SCR. And if anybody's interested in restoration, they should certainly either join or at least look up uh, SCR. And I was on the board of SCR and served as their chair for two terms and found out about rewilding as I was involved in that organization. And that's how I got associated with the Wildlands Network. And so there's there are industry conferences, industry groups out there that are really leading the way in restoration. And, you know, the UN declared 2021 to 2030 the decade on ecosystem restoration. So around the world, we're starting to see the idea of restoration and what some people are calling the restoration economy begin to take off. Including what you guys do, but also maybe you could broaden the scope a little bit. What are some of the possibilities out there? I didn't know we might go this way, but it it seems like we must because I want to make sure that people are properly inspired and guided to the right places. But what can individuals do if they're inspired by this and they're like, I want to dedicate my life to this? Yeah, I think there's there's um, many different ways. One way is that if people are interested in going through, you know, college and um, getting a college education, certainly there are many universities and colleges now offering restoration ecology programs. So, you know, four-year or master's or PhD programs in restoration ecology. So that's one avenue people can take. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, the, the types of backgrounds that that we have here at Biohabitats, we have fluvial geomorphologists, soil scientists, foresters, arborists, ecologists, conservation biologists, um, landscape architects, ecological engineers, civil engineers. So it really varies because restoration requires all those both you know those biological and and physical disciplines. Um, and so it really takes a combination of, of people with different backgrounds, different expertise to come together to work on restoration projects. So if we're doing a coastal marsh or river restoration, we might have a hydrologist that's providing us with all the information on hydrology and how water flows through the landscape. We might have a geomorphologist that's talking about how land forms under these flow conditions. We might have an aquatic ecologist that's, that's providing expertise on, on the flora and fauna of these aquatic systems. We might have a soil scientist. And in some cases, we might even have somebody that has a background in social sciences because really restoration is all about working with communities and engaging communities because if we don't get community buy-in or if we don't get political buy-in or business or industry buy-in, then what we found is that a lot of these restoration projects don't really succeed or don't sustain themselves. And then another big avenue, I think, in the restoration field is it takes a lot of people to implement these projects. And that's everything from laborers out in the field to equipment operators to surveyors to project managers, field supervisors 
a whole slew of people that you might associate with the landscape contracting or construction industry uh, to actually implement these projects. So there's a vast array of different ways of getting involved in ecological restoration. No wonder it's such a large economy. The numbers that are projected are so large. It makes sense now. They still seem small (laughs) when you think about the whole planet, but yeah. They do, right. But you you know what else, Jack, that we've been finding is that going back to sort of the social aspect of this. And, and this applies, I think, you know, from a, a regional uh, uh, um, continental scale in terms of rewilding all the way down to maybe a local scale is that it really does take community buy-in. It takes community engagement. There's a whole sort of social science aspect of conservation and restoration. And there's, there, you know, more and more we're finding that there's an environmental or climate justice aspect of restoration and conservation. And so those have become, uh, I think, really key components we've seen over the last maybe five, six, seven years that, that we're seeing more of now that are embedded in a lot of the work that we do. What are some of the things that you would like to hear conservationists, activists, leaders of organizations like ours talking about? in light of the the disconnect that you brought up earlier between the big picture and the on the ground stuff, the things that you guys do when it comes to actually looking at an area and figuring out what we can do to begin restoration or uh, protecting adjacent areas where a restoration needs to take place. Because I agree with you that we don't talk as much about that as we do the great big reports like the UN report and and others or regional things. How do we connect up the local stuff with the larger efforts to rewild the land? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So in my involvement with the Wildlands Network over the years and and other, you know, other other NGOs and, and organizations, there's some really great work out there and looking at continental corridors or regional corridors for for rewilding landscapes. And I couldn't agree more that we need that. We need that when we talk about green infrastructure, a lot of times people focus in on urban areas and they focus in on stormwater and looking at things from a, a fairly narrow and site-specific standpoint. And when I think of green infrastructure and how I would like people to think about green infrastructure, you have to start from a continental scale first and think about all the places you want to conserve, you want to protect, you want to rewild to provide that sort of overall fabric, um, if you will, that we can rely on those sort of ecosystem services and processes. And then how do you nest within that our, our continuing urbanization of certain parts of the landscape and suburbanizing certain parts of the landscape, but thread into those landscapes the idea that they're intricately and ecologically connected to those larger efforts that are going on. So for instance, you know, there's a lot of, of work um, being done across the United States and across the world on rewilding and and we're we're getting involved. We've been involved with programs like in in Baltimore, Maryland. We did a green uh, network plan for the city. We've worked out in Kansas City, their metropolitan area, and looking at, at green ways and green networks that transect through the community. And we're working in Atlanta right now, where we're developing an urban ecology framework for the city of Atlanta. And really, what we want to try to do is 
connect those things that happen at a local scale that affect how land is developed, that affect how land is zoned? How can we begin to change those policies, change those comprehensive plans, change zoning in a way that allows for ecological connection through our landscape, through our cities that connect up to these larger rewilding efforts. Um, because I think if we're isolated, if we, if, if we continue to develop and urbanize our landscape and don't reconnect back out to uh, these other landscapes that are in a, either a more natural or protected state, then I think overall we'll, we'll fail at what we're trying to do in terms of really protecting and restoring the ecological integrity of our land. At our last board meeting, we're discussing inviting many, many more articles from people on the ground, people who are doing specific projects or overseeing a network of projects like you guys, uh, making sure that, that we then provide the context of how all of this fits in. Um, it's really not up to you guys because you have to do the work and you're very, very busy doing very, very complex things. And uh, we felt, you know, rewilding could pick up some of that slack by making sure that we continually bring up examples of work that companies like yours do and then tie that in and not always be on the macro level, not always be on the big level, because I think a lot of people tend to lean out when that happens. It's like, it's just too big for me. I don't even know what I could do. I, you know, That's right. so we also want to yeah. connect people with projects. Are there, you know, any opportunities for people in your bioregions, which I want to talk about next, for them to get involved with any of your projects? Oh, sure. There are quite a bit. And oh, we're cool. trying to make that more and more of a, a mainstay in the work that we do, especially working in in vulnerable or disadvantaged communities as well, because we think it's not only a great way to to just get engaged and, and sort of get reconnected with nature, but it's a great educational opportunity as well. And so I think you know, there are certainly ways to to get reengaged there. I'm, I'm based right now in Charleston, South Carolina, and just as an example, to the north of us is a forest called Francis Marion Forest, which is a U.S., uh, both state and U.S. Forest Service forest, about um, maybe 100,000 acres. But just south of us is the what's called the Ace Basin, which back in the 80s and 90s, the Nature Conservancy with other NGOs came in, and this is all called the low country of South Carolina, a lot of marshes, old rice plantations, and they went in and conserved about 300,000 acres of land. And Charleston sits right between it. And oh, by the way, to the east of Charleston is this big, big, big wilderness area called the Atlantic Ocean. So Charleston mm -hmm. is sort of between the Atlantic Ocean, the Ace Basin to the south, and the Francis Marion Forest to the north. And the idea is that from a, a regional and even East Coast connectivity standpoint in terms of rewilding the landscape, how do we, re how do we connect Francis Marion Forest to the Ace Basin? So we're essentially allowing species to move back and forth before Charleston gets to a point where it's developed so much that you lose that connection, right? So from a local level here, people that are interested in thinking about and wanting to see that happen can get involved from an advocacy standpoint. From an on-the-ground standpoint, um, much of this area, if it's not lowland uh, cypress swamp, it's uh, longleaf 
um, pine forest, right? And we're, we, we used to have 93 million acres of longleaf pine throughout the Southeast, and now we have 3 million acres left, or a little over 3 million. So the idea of restoring the longleaf pine forest is starting to take hold. And there are very there are all kinds of volunteer opportunities to get out there and help restore longleaf pine forests. So I, I would say that no matter what part of the country that you're in, there are opportunities to restore to help restore prairies or longleaf pine forests or coastal marshes or even you know there's there's efforts underway in the Rocky Mountains and other areas to restore alpine meadows and alpine lakes. And so. There's certainly opportunities for people, both from a professional standpoint and or a volunteer standpoint, to get involved in these on-the-ground efforts. And then that brings us to bioregions. I was just talking to Randy Hayes, uh, Foundation Earth and Rainforest Action Network and Half Earth, and uh, he was talking about, we were talking about his early 500-year plan and then an updated version of a seven-point plan of radically changing the way that we organize as human beings from cultural to economic to everything. And he brought up the bioregion thing. He says that there's mm-hmm. got to be places where primarily most of our economy comes from this place. Most of our goods and services with the exception of, I think he said coffee and something else. Uh, and that's just to maintain sanity would have to be brought into areas that cannot <laughs> grow coffee. But it was really interesting to check out your site and realize you guys don't have, I mean, you have a field office in Philadelphia, but you don't say the Philadelphia office. You say the Chesapeake, Delaware Bay bioregion. And tell us right. a little bit more about that. What's, what's going on with the bioregion thing? Are you just kicking this off and saying this is how it's going to be, so let's just do bioregions? No, actually, when I founded the company back in the early 80s, I was, I forget what I was reading at the time, but the whole idea of, and it might have come out of permaculture or some other readings about the concept of bioregions, that just like you said, there are this idea that, that from an ecological and cultural standpoint, it's the reason why certain regions are what they are. Right. So it's not really defined by political boundaries It's defined by those ecological attributes and those cultural norms in that area. So, for instance, if you take the, the low country of South Carolina or the Sea Islands of Georgia or the Chesapeake, Delaware bays in the Mid-Atlantic or the Cascadia region out in, in Portland and Washington, it's the idea that people people are attracted and have an affinity and, and can relate to that sense of place of where they are because of, of the, again, the ecological and cultural attributes. So when, when I thought about, well, you know, if we expand and we have offices, I mean, we do work throughout the country, I, I want to kind of ignore the political boundaries and really elevate this idea of bioregions, that we are really um, part of a bioregion, and that's where we get our sense of place. And so we purposefully tried to, I guess, advocate and push that idea that we have a Cascadia bioregion that happens to be located in Portland, but does work throughout the Cascadia area. And we have folks there that have either grown up in the area, that have been educated in the area, or spent a, a significant amount of their career in the area, and know that area really well, and have certain expertise in that area. Right. And it's not it's not that you have expertise in Oregon and it goes away when you step over the line into Washington 
um, you have expertise in that whole Cascadia bioregion. And that's not to say that they have certain expertise that they could export to other areas of the country and it would still be value, valuable. Uh, but, but the idea that, that we really want to promote this idea that we are part of the landscape, we are part of the environment we grew up in, the culture we grew up in, and trying to really preserve that and highlight it and celebrate it. And so that's the idea behind our bioregions. And I think overall, it's worked fairly well. We've struggled at times where, um, just one quick story, we opened an office in Georgia and it's our Southeast Atlantic bioregion and we're doing work there. Then we started doing a lot of work in North Carolina and basically North Carolina said, well, if you're not in our state, we're not going to give you as much work. So, you know, we're saying it's the same bioregion, but we're not politically you know, part of that state. And so we've, we've had to try to massage and maneuver around to make it fit and make it work, but we're really committed to the idea. I remember back in the 90s and working with Sky Island Alliance and Wildlands Project, uh, rousing discussions over campfires about uh, whether we should be basing our mapping and our planning and all of these things on watersheds. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't understand for a minute exactly what what everyone was talking about. And then I got it. And then I was like, okay, this actually makes sense. And it, was, it really happens when you cross those state lines, when you're right at the juncture of two states and they have different plans for their land, they have different laws, they have different policies right. <laughs> than from each yep. other. And I, I didn't think it was as clean as you display it on your site. But, and I figured that there was probably some things that you guys must have to do to fit into the current, but also keep your idea of place being within bioregions at the same time. So I can't imagine that that's always been a very clean um, and easy task. And I like that you're helping people to think in a different way about where we live and, and, and what all these regions really represent, irrespective of their political boundaries. I think that's exactly it. I think it's, it has been challenging, but it has been fun and it gets people thinking about it, which is great. Now you guys are a B Corp and not a lot of people yes. still know much about B Corps. Can you tell everybody what that means that you're not a, a normal, regular business as usual company? Maryland was the first state, I think, in the country to to designate a corporate that you as a corporation as being incorporated in the state you can become a benefit corporation. And really a benefit corporation means that you are not required to maximize your financial return to your stockholders or shareholders. You can balance financial um, return with social and environmental responsibility and good, right? So it's the idea there that under most states or all states, when you're incorporated and a corporation is required to maximize their financial returns to their shareholders. And, you know, in some cases, companies can be sued for not doing that. So the idea of a benefit corporation is that, no, you don't, you're not required to do that, that environmental and social responsibility and good is part of the equation of why you're in business. So there's a legal there's a legal standing of becoming a benefit corporation. There's also a nonprofit called B Corp. And B Corp is a nonprofit that requires people that want to become a B Corp or, or companies that want to become a B Corp to go through a certification process where you need to submit 
um, all kinds of information on how you're governed, what kinds of things you do in terms of, of, of social and environmental responsibility, and they rate you on that. And you have to cross a certain threshold in order to be certified as a B Corp. So we did several things. We went through and, and we reincorporated in Maryland to become a benefit corporation. And we also went through the B Corp uh, process to get certified as a B Corp. And that's really just the beginning because I think they're, they're, you know, the, high, the highest you could score in a B Corp is 200. And I think we're at about 112. And, and that's fairly, um, maybe a little bit on the high side of normal for, for corporations to get certified. So there's still more work for us to do um, in terms of being more socially and environmentally responsible out there. I like to think that our mission of restore the earth and inspire ecological stewardship and what we do as a corporation plays into all that, but also how we govern our own selves, how we actually go about doing the business of restoration. We wanted to make sure that we were walking the talk there. Um, from a business standpoint, and hopefully becoming an inspiration and leaders for other businesses to do that. Then on top of that, we there's another organization out there called the International Living Futures Institute, and they started a certification program called JUST, and that's all about being socially responsible. Um, and so we went through the JUST certification too. And by the way, both these certifications are transparent. You can get on the websites and look up all the different company scores there and where how they scored on different metrics to get an idea of what they're doing well and what they might not be doing well. So part of this is is the idea that you know you want to be as transparent as possible in terms of how you do business and how you govern yourself. And then finally we we joined 1% for the planet where we've committed to taking 1% of our total revenues each year and give them back to environmental and social causes. And in fact, that wasn't much of a stretch for us at all because we've been doing that historically um, since we've been in business. But this was a way to to maybe maybe just codify it and recognize um, that we are doing that. I brought that up because I wanted to shed some light on the daunting nature of what humanity is really beginning to undertake here with seriousness <laughs> and that people are, are listening to these things like this, reading articles and things, and maybe not notice that the world has changed quite a bit in terms of the fact that companies like yours exist. Now, if somebody were just to follow your arc coming from the Wildlands Project and, and before and, and after that, they might be wondering, well, how much good could you possibly be doing in a for-profit venture? And I, that's why I wanted to bring it up. But the world has changed. Yeah. And there are these things called B Corps and benefit corporations and, and the other certifications that you mentioned. And there are quite a few players in this space and it's growing all the time and your mandate like you said is not to shareholders your mandate is to do good basically which is what is outlined in yours and every other business like yours is mission we are not starting from a dead start and people like you have been working on this stuff for quite a long time and and people like you have a lot of ideas of how all of this stuff can be ramped up and done better and have a lot of experience leading up to that um, so I kind of wanted to shed light on that for that reason, because someone might go, well, what are you doing now in the company? And you guys aren't really, right. you guys are more like a nonprofit than a company when you compare you to Exxon. And, and we take that as a compliment on one hand, 
But I think we also say that unless we mainstream this type of work, you know, we, we can debate about capitalism and whether capitalism is the right economic model going forward. And in many ways, it may not be, but it is right now. And if we're going to mainstream the idea of conservation and restoration, then, then we believe there have to be viable for-profit businesses out there that do that and return a value to their shareholders or, you know, their owners. And we also believe, though, in this idea of conscious capitalism, that we need to do it in a way where we're conscious of the social and environmental impact we have in running a business and governing a business. And so we think that's extremely important. And we want to prove that not only can we go out there and conserve and restore ecosystems for rewilding the planet, but we can do it in a way where we can make a profit and we run a business in a way that gives back to the community and has the values in terms of promoting social and environmental responsibility. Which leads me to my next question, which is uh, your latest blog post by Joe Berg, The Restoration Economy. I think another mm -hmm. assumption that the people that I'm talking about who are, who are trying to figure out how all this stuff works and how it might work going forward, another thing that a lot of people are saying in the news, they're talking about the expense, as if we have any other choice is my first response, but they're talking about the expense of restoration and all these different programs, the Green New Deal and how much that's going to cost and what it even means in the first place and, and all of that. And and this, uh, this article I thought was really nice because I'm looking through your site and I'm like, I want to talk about this. How can, oh, they wrote an article about it, that it doesn't <laughs> need to be seen as an expense, that there is an economy here that can be developed out of restoring the planet and to do the projects that you guys are doing, larger, big rewilding projects, projects working around climate change and don't have to be an expense. Yeah, I think, I think we like to think of it as an investment, not an expense, right? We're investing in our future. And, and I think we, we're all seeing the, the impacts from the decline of our environment, whether it's on a global scale like climate change or potential links of increasing cases of cancer and how that might be linked to the toxics that we put in our air and soil. And having, you know, that has a huge economic impact on us. And so we look at restoration as really an investment in the future. And, and again, if we can mainstream that and people can make a living off of it and profit from it in a, in a fair and equitable and reasonable way, then I think it, it, it plays right into the idea that it isn't an expense. It is an investment in our future and it's a way of restoring the quality of life that we all hope for our, our kids and our grandkids, and that we can also sustain a, a fairly healthy and robust uh, culture and economy in doing that. So it really isn't about, you know, we need to go back and conserve land and protect land and restore land and, and somehow go back to what might have been considered an ideal state, whether that was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or 200 years ago, the idea is that, yeah, we need to temper our consumerism um, habits, but we also can invest in the idea of restoring and protecting land and derive a, a, a good economy out of it. I dream of a day where people are, and I think this is already happening and has been for the last decade, uh, but I'd like to see a lot more of it instead of a, you know, a successful mogul who is 
you know, running a company that's maybe a B Corp and it's done really good stuff, showing how he or she is spending their profits instead of standing in front of a car that they just bought or a great big house, but a, a nature preserve. It just seems like people are changing in their attitudes and it, and it feels way too slow for all of us, of course, but, it, but I do see it. I do feel it. Do you get that sense mm-hmm. that, that we may be turning a corner here in a much, much more meaningful way than we have in the past? Yeah, Jack, I'd like to think we are. I, uh, there are times when I feel really optimistic about that and I see some of those changes begin to happen. We just had some really good conversations in the Charleston area recently about resiliency and sea level rise and climate change and how we need to start thinking differently. So that is certainly permeating throughout, but I still think there's there's a big part of our culture that's still more um, consumer oriented and the idea of how, you know, I, I think we're with you. We need to figure out how we can mainstream this even more than what we're doing now. What's some of the news that would indicate that this is happening on a much more rapid scale, that we're turning that corner? Yeah, I think, well, I think the idea that we're protecting species and protecting landscapes that need to be protected, that are critical habitat. And the more I read about efforts underway there, the, the more optimistic I get and jazzed I get about it, both both in the oceans and, and in the land. I think the idea of addressing things like climate change and how do we think about resiliency, not just economic resiliency, but ecological resiliency in the landscape. And those conversations are starting to happen more and more, which is fantastic. The B, the B Corp community is growing, um, which is great to see. There's still, um, it's still a drop in the bucket out there, but more and more companies and industries are beginning to pay attention to that. So that's really inspiring. You know, another part of uh, the work that we do that isn't quite related to rewilding, but certainly has an impact. We get, we get involved in a lot of these uh, buildings, lead buildings, leadership for energy and environmental design, and these other buildings called living building challenge buildings, which are basically buildings being built that use zero uh, they're they're basically off the grid. They generate their own energy. They collect all their rainwater and reuse it throughout the building. Um, they use materials that come from sustainable sources and are all non-toxic materials. And we're getting more and more involved in that type of work and in, in helping whether it's developments or universities or institutions build those kinds of buildings. And so what what we sometimes fail to realize is that, you know, to build a building, you've got to go out and mine certain materials, which then you're fragmenting the landscape, you're, you're impacting the landscape from a regional perspective, which plays into the role of making rewilding even harder. And if we can learn to, to develop in even urban ways with less of an impact on our rural landscapes, the more opportunities it gives us to do rewilding in our rural landscapes. And so even those types of things, we're seeing uh, a major trend, uptick and trend in, in thinking about how to build more sustainably in cities, um, which I think, and how to be off the grid more, use less energy, use renewable energy, collect rainwater, recycle wastewater back into buildings as, as potable water and gray water. And all those things, I think, all contribute to the idea that if we can create these really green and healthy and sustainable cities, 
then that frees up all this other land to begin thinking about and, and promoting the idea of rewilding those landscapes. So that's what really gets me excited. And I think we are starting to see those kinds of changes begin to happen. Well, us rewilders might be a little more excited about that than you think, um, it particularly. <laughs> Uh, I tend to have a dour outlook when people start talking about technology um, being uh, such an important part in all of this, though we know it's going to be absolutely necessary and required. We tend to question who's delivering the message. And why I wanted to go over the B Corp stuff and your background and everything is that I don't have that outlook when I'm talking to people like you. I trust what you guys are saying because I trust where you've been and you wear your hearts on your sleeve. It's easy to look into your company and find out exactly who you are and what you're about at all times. And where you come from really makes a difference and completely colors the way that you approach all of your projects and your general outlook. So I just really appreciate that you took the time to come on today. I think this is really helping to bridge several gaps that we have in our understanding of what companies like you, individuals like you are doing out there and how it all is part of this big process that we're about to undertake in a way that humanity never has uh, even dreamt before. So thank you so much, Keith, for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth, and we really, really hope to have you back. Thank you so much, Jack, for having us. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.